Now I switch over a little bit to more of a performance mindset with getting back into training and having a, a race on the calendar with goals, you know, during that race. And so, you know, I'd love to be able to go under 430 um, for, you know, for the half Ironman, you know, looking at it, that's um, a world championship qualifying time, you know, in my age group. Um, but the caveat for me is to do that um, with a maximum of 10 hours a week, right? So, you know, for uh, 430 max 10 hours a week, uh, just because the demands of my life with, you know, family, three kids, uh, the businesses, you know, that we have and, and other commitments, um, you know, hence, you know, here we are. I know you two are the, the best in the biz. And especially when I'm operating on a very, very limited amount of time for my training, I thought who better to talk to uh, than you two about the best way to attack that and achieve the goal. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited today, guys. We're talking with Matt Balzer. He's the owner of Reno Running Company Shoe Store here in Reno. Matt and I go way back, and I would say that Matt, he's one of those guys before the podcast started, I thought to myself, we better start this actual podcast because we can have a whole pre-podcast very easily with the amount of information that Matt can give. But guys, why are you listening to Matt Balzer today? I'll let him talk about himself, his history a little bit, and how we feel like he can give you some good information today. Matt, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you two legends. Ha, legends. Well, thank you. To me, you you are a legend. You're maybe a little bit more of a Reno legend, but certainly in this area, you say Matt Balzer and people right away know exactly who you are. And what I love most about that, Matt, it's the person that you are. It's always about the service you've given to other runners, finding their passion, helping them find the right shoe, etc. So you know, again, I'm I'm uh, taking over because I'm excited, but I'll let you talk about your history a little bit. Uh, what brought you to having running stores? You know, what what was your journey like, Matt? Where did you start off from, and and uh, where are you at today? Sure. So, thank you for having me and that wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, I guess I mean my journey for for running started at a very young age with active parents and a father that ran. Um, was just kind of active in sports my whole life, uh, found track and field actually in college, uh, ran, uh, I'll say poorly for the, uh, the Colorado school of mines. I was probably, uh, in the wrong events. I was 200, 400 meter runner at the time. Um, but just absolutely fell in love with, you know, the culture, the teammates camaraderie, uh, truly that team was the best part of my college experience. Um, having done that and then looking for a kind of another outlet to continue my athletic competition in Denver endeavors, I found triathlon. Um, and that, you know, really became like the passion athletically for me after, after college, um, you know, started out, of course, wanting to be an ITU athlete and, you know, dreams of going to the Olympics, um, which, you know, trained super, super hard for, found out that that wasn't going to be my path uh, relatively early on. But still the, you know, just the whole process of putting three sports together, 
uh, the technical aspects of learning how to swim, bike, refining the run, um, and just, you know, I, I really, I love grueling athletic endeavors and, um, and triathlon really was it for me. Um, so, you know, did that for quite a few years, um, all the way up to 2017. Uh, so that was 2003, I graduated college, 2017, um, was my last triathlon, um, that I've done since then. And, uh, throughout that journey, I moved to Reno in 2009 uh, was in Colorado. Really, at that point, Colorado was the hub of wonderful specialty run stores. Um, the communities that they built, the the passion that they had for helping people. And I moved to Reno and just thought, man, we could we could do this here. You know, at the time, Reno was coming off um, a pretty rough period with uh, the housing collapse in 2008, um, but we saw the potential. Absolutely breathtakingly beautiful landscape here, um, a very, very rich running history. And uh, we, you know, with a team of great people, we put together Reno Running Company, um, opened up our first specialty run store in 2011. And since then, we've grown to three stores. Um, we now have a race business as well, where we put on events. And so, Kind of what we go for is helping people achieve their active lifestyle goals. And then the events are the celebration of that active lifestyle. Um, and we've been very fortunate to have helped well in excess of 100,000 people, um, you know, find find the passion of, of running, walking, hiking the outdoors um, in these last roughly 12 years. And it's truly a pleasure and an honor to serve the community in that way every single day. Wow. That's a, that's a great history. And... I think you're a humble guy. I'm I'm going to let people know that you actually won four national Xterra championship titles for your age group, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and that journey we'll talk about, I think, a little bit later in the podcast when we we talk about your training for your next seventy point three that you want to get after. So great to have some some goals and First, we, I think we're going to talk a little bit about race 178 that you mentioned as well, because I just got done doing the Reno Tau Odyssey with a six person, they call it like an ultra team. That means that we are all doing basically double the legs with six people instead of 12. But normally this RTO is done with 12 person teams and that's your event. Now, the last thing I'll say for my part is, man, what a crazy small world, because my wife's cousin, Eric LaRude, was the one who started race 178. I still remember the day I went out running with Eric. He was, uh, he's the sweetest guy. Um, he actually gave up uh, his own career, I believe, as an attorney to take over race 178 and make it what it is today. So a lot of kudos to Eric. We'll have him have to listen to this podcast maybe. But I still remember that run where he was talking about hood to coast and how he wanted to bring something like that to Reno. And wow, what a special event uh, that is. And Matt, I will say without, you know, kissing butt too much, okay, but wow, this, I couldn't believe how well the whole event went off for your first year doing it. I know you worked with Eric quite a bit before uh, the event to make sure that you had all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, but um yeah, what a wonderful event, but man, I was just thinking that was, that must've been so much of your time in the last few months, Matt. 
It was, yeah, it, it truly was. And and Eric, you know, to his credit, he set us up for success, uh, put together this, you know, this amazing um, event, part of the community. Um, and it it is, it's a nine month plus undertaking. Um, and, and I do it with a fantastic group of people here. We have um, a core group of four uh, that work on the event side business, um, Kelly, Taylor, Leland, myself, um, that, you know, put together all the things that have to go on in the background. Um, and, and sometimes seemingly the chaos in the backgrounds to make it so that the runner experience is, you know, as flawless as we can make it when you're trying to navigate that many people around 178 miles of Reno, Lake Tahoe, Carson city and the Sierra mountains. Um, but it was, it was truly one of the most fulfilling experiences of my entire life, getting to stand there at the finish line, um, greet, I, I think I greeted about 180 out of the 225 teams, um, that, that finished. And just to see the joy on their face when, you know, they, they accomplished this, this huge undertaking, um, you know, whether it was uh, for some of them, they are couch to 5k type runners. And then of course, you know, there are, there are the teams like yours, Matt, that, you know, that you're navigating it with six people. So you're doing double duty. Uh, you know, there's teams that average under six minute miles for the whole thing and, and everybody in between, but it, it's just so special to see everybody's journey and, and how they get through it. Yeah. It was a beautiful experience. And I will say as far as culture goes, I think that's, what's kind of cool to talk about here because there were so many people that I got to talk to during the event. It reminded me of why things like this are so special because uh, for me personally it wasn't really about the time the team got i know there was certainly some people on the team that really were going for a certain time and that's great but i was on leg four the first leg that i did and um you know i was trying to be a little bit more conservative there's a lot of uphill in that leg and it's eight miles etc but I just thought, well, I've got six legs and over 30 miles total, so I better pace myself. No sleeping with a uh, six-person team. So I spent a little bit more time uh, talking to people as I was running with them, right? And uh, one woman that I passed by and we talked for a few, um, for a few minutes or so, she was telling me all about her journey and that she had um, a child the year before, her first baby. And, you know, I just thought to myself, wow, this is amazing. You're out here doing leg four, which is supposed to be, I think, the toughest leg, I believe. And, yep. and you know, toughest leg. right. And it, and I just thought to myself, wow, this is this is what it's all about um, for people listening. Like they do start off with the teams that have predicted slower times. They'll start earlier. And then as the teams go on, they get faster and faster. So you get to also mix in with teams of all levels and backgrounds and cultures. And so that was so cool about that. But I, you know, I took away from that experience, like, wow, this event got her focused on getting herself back into her best, most optimal health after having her baby. And I know, you know, we all know, right uh, here, we all have kids on the podcast and talking about what it must have taken to just manage her schedule with a newborn as well. How is so impressed with that. And just, I just love that uh, people have that type of experience to look forward to. So uh, beautiful, awesome experience, Matt, with all, with all of that, but especially getting to meet the people. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And, and very, very true. I mean, so many different 
so many different stories, unbelievable stories that that come through, you know, our stores and and our events. It it is it's really really special to see, um, you know, what what running, how important running is uh, to a lot of people, and you know what they'll what they'll endure um, to get through those events, how it adds to their life. Um, it's you know it it it's amazing. Yeah, and you know, finally, I'll say. With the six-person team I was on, I just thought it was uh, interesting because the the guys on the team, for the most part, I was 50, but I was the um, second youngest. Most of the guys were over 60 on my team, but pretty pretty cool. We were called uh, More Trauma, Less Drama, right? So it's a pretty cool name. And what what I really thought was cool is uh, there was no drama. I mean, I, I really felt like, especially maybe because it's an ultra team like that, people going into that, they're a little bit more uh, focused on pre- uh, preparation for a race like this as well. Um, but I was really surprised at how smooth the whole thing went. And again, that's a lot to say about how you organize the event, but also just bringing the team together under stress like that and finding your way out to the other side and across that line, uh, like you talked about, just you're just so elated to see the finish line. And it's because that journey was so important to you to get to that line. And I think there's so many um, variables there that are so fun to think about. But yeah, thanks for putting on a great event. And I think moving forward to your running store, I just wanted to talk a little bit about just yesterday, Bobby and I were um, taking on a new runner who is going to try to run the Chicago Marathon in a a pretty um, uh, quick time under 245 is his main goal. And his name is Ryan Peel. You you know Ryan, Matt as well, I believe, but... uh, Bobby was talking to Ryan about his uh, his shoes and what he's wearing now versus what he'll need for the Chicago Marathon. And I thought, well, good thing he's got Matt to go to here in town. <laughs> so, But the shoe conversation and how you do find the right shoe for everyone, depending on you know all these different variables, of course, that we talk about. But I will say you go to the big stores and you go in there and you might find a, a chew, but you're not even sure if it really works for you. And then you try to talk to somebody about it. And uh, there's, I will say on my side of things, they don't know uh, my experience. And I just think, okay, that was a lot of misinformation. So uh, I'm going to go to Matt and, um, and get the right uh, experience. But why don't you talk a little bit about what you actually do for somebody coming into your store, not knowing a thing about what shoe they actually need? Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. So, um, you know, really we're looking at our, our fit process. We call a, a balanced fit solution. Um, and the actual gait analysis part of, of our fit process uh, was taught to us by a world-renowned podiatrist uh, named Simon Bartold. Um, he has worked for many um, of, the, of the big running shoe brands um, in footwear development. Um, has done, you know, seemingly endless studies on on foot mechanics, injury prevention, um, and so it was it was amazing that we got to have him early on come come to our stores and kind of help us define what gait analysis looked like for us. Um, but you know, most importantly, it starts with a conversation with the individual. So they they walk in and you know we do a quick interview with them. You know, what are their goals? What are they looking to accomplish? Are they walking, running, um, injury history? 
And so all of our associates, they go through a few months of, of training um, so that they're aware on our process, um, gait analysis, foot mechanics, all of the different footwear injury, um, common running injuries so that we can best help anybody that walks in, um, you know, no matter where they are on their active journey. Uh, and so after we do our interview, we take them and we measure their feet. Um, you know, it's an opportunity one to just make sure people are in the right size shoe. That's, that's probably one of the most common things that we see is that people come in and they think they're a certain size and that's actually not the size they should be. Um, and it also gives us an opportunity to look at people's feet. Um, because, you know, how their foot is shaped, um, if they have things, you know, like bunions um, or, you know, high arches, low arches, a lot of a lot of footwear selection can be narrowed down really quickly just by, you know, the shape and look of, of somebody's foot. Um, and so once we have all of that information, we grab a relatively soft neutral shoe. Uh, so without really any type of, you know, control. Um, or support device in it. And then we go to the treadmill and we do a video gate analysis. Um, and the way we look at our video gate analysis is we do rear foot, um, we do lateral, and then we do forefoot. Um, and, and the lateral and forefoot, you know, a lot more stores are, are coming to this, but, you know, traditionally you'd go into a store and they would either watch you walk um, just rear foot and they, you know, the goal was fit to rear foot neutral. So, you know, looking at that, Achilles tendon up the calf, uh, making sure that that it was straight. And, you know, I think it's pretty well documented now that that's not the be all end all of, uh, of shoe fitting and support. Um, and so as we worked through things with Simon, looking at, uh, at a lateral aspect where you can see where the person's feet are landing in space in relation, you know, to their hips. What's the shin angle when the foot comes into contact with the ground? Um, you know, are there differences, um, you know, left to right where, you know, their feet are landing, how they're landing, um, if they're heel striking midfoot um, or forefoot striking. And then really most, most importantly, where we spend most of our time is, um, is looking at the forefoot. So now we're looking straight on and we're doing slow motion video capture um, because really what we have found is there's not a whole lot of, of difference that is made in, in rear foot, right. With say pronation, right. Or over pronation. And Simon, um, would, would argue that there's no such thing as over pronation because we don't really know what is, is too much when we're looking from the rear foot, right. People have flexible ankles. Um, you know, they can pronate, they can supinate. Really what we focus on is as they start loading from the midfoot to toe off, are they balanced? And that's why we call it the balance fit solution is that are, are they balanced in the shoe that they're going to be wearing as they go through toe off? Meaning, you know, are they, do they continue to roll through kind of all the way past the big toe? Do they flare out laterally? Uh, you know, does it seem like their foot is sliding off, off the platform? And so by doing that in a neutral shoe, that's really going to allow their foot to do, you know, just about anything that it wants. That narrows our selection down to, you know, say four or five shoes in the store, right? Out of maybe 150, you know, different models. So we've gone for, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's my injury history. Here's what I look like when I'm running. Um, and, and all those things come down to, here are four to five shoes that we think are really going to achieve balance in your foot especially at toe-off, 
and and then it comes down to you know comfort and experience. So is this shoe comfortable? Does it you know does it fit? Is it wide enough in the areas that it needs to be wide? Is there enough you know space for the toes to display? Um, is it securing the heel? Uh, you know, just general comfort filter, right? Is that comfort filter high? I put this shoe on and it disappears on my feet. It's the most comfortable shoe I've ever worn. That is very important. Um, and then, and then the experience of it, what do you want the shoe, you know, to feel like if you're going for some level of performance, do you want that bounce and that pop that, you know, that explosiveness, um, or, you know, is it just, I don't want running to hurt. You know, my knees hurt when I run, so I want that pillowy softness. Um, or I want a shoe with a really nice rocker profile that just kind of like bike wheels rolls me through my gait cycle um, and it's less impact on my on my joints. And so as as a customer is going through that and they're trying these shoes on and they're describing what they're feeling, we're always looking at their feet to achieve balance as well. Um, to make sure that we didn't get something wrong when we brought that four or five shoe selection out because the shoes are so different, people's feet are so different and not what you alluded to of just going into a store and picking something off the wall, you know, based off of color or, you know, my friend says this is the best running shoe that he or she has ever had. Um, you know, now we're looking at, well, what is the best shoe for you based off of all these factors um, and then ensuring as we look for, you know, as they're making their final selection that we're getting balance and specifically at, at midfoot to toe off, um, as they're just running or walking or around the store, or we put them back on the treadmill again, um, you know, more so than we focus on just, you know, what does the rear foot look like? Um, so yeah, that's, that's the process, uh, that, that we go through. Um, and, and it varies a little bit depending on walking, running, trail running, road running, hiking, um. But that's that's the nuts and bolts. Fantastic. I I know Bobby's gonna have a comment or two on shoes, so I'll let him talk. But I had one comment I was thinking about as as you were bringing some things up. I, for example, had somebody that was running in a group with me, and I was talking about how much I loved my super shoes that I was wearing that day, and we were doing some uh, some good intensity work and. Uh, ben Canute actually gave them to me because I happen to have the same size <laughs> foot as him. And I, I do kind of get away with being able to wear different types of shoes, but it, in particular with the super shoe, I think that's a careful conversation on who really is right for a shoe like that. And if you've done the preparation for that super shoe. So a lot to unpack there. I think Bobby also would want to speak on that, but I was just, uh, he went out and got a pair and then told me, yeah, that that's really uh, disrupted my run. And I, and I told him, yeah, that's why you, you've got to go and actually get a fitting in and understand the shoe that's going to work for you. It's not just because the shoe is uh, fast, right? And it's, it's uh, publicized or it's sold to be a faster shoe for you doesn't mean it's the right shoe for you, uh, or at least maybe it's not the right shoe for you right now, right? So I think uh, sort of graduating that conversation over to Bobby from here, but uh, that was my my thought on um, you know what what the importance is of actually going in to see a staff like yours, somebody who's actually trying to get you into the best shoe, not the most expensive shoe necessarily. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I've I've already learned so much, Matt. I, I I really appreciate you bringing up Simon and his approach. And you know, the word balance goes way beyond actually balance, right? It's all about 
balanced lifestyle and balanced everything else. And I think that that approach to footwear is, is so important for people to understand. Because I think most people that are heavily into running tend to be, you know, our job in every aspect of what we do in endurance, all three of us, tends to be education, right? So uh, my first question would be in terms of a fit, how do you advise your staff and what would you do if you were specifically uh, you know, fitting somebody for a shoe in terms of their preconceived ideas. You know, do you use an old pair of shoes? Do you look at, you know, what what they really like coming in the door or stuff like that? So we do try, that's a great question. Um, you know, we, we do try to take control of, you know, of the sale um, and, and the fit process, you know, best, best we can because, there can be the the whole preconceived idea can you know can can be such a spectrum right from just somebody told me once this is the best pair of shoes right which is close to meaningless to i have run with great success in you know this brand or this specific type of shoe for years and years and years which is extremely important right because ultimately what we can do and accomplish in the store in 20 to 30 minutes um, is is by no means exhaustive, and um, you know history, years of history, um, typically is. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the a great pair of shoes for for somebody is a shoe that is comfortable, that they're excited about putting on and going for a run in the morning. Um, because for the vast majority of of our customer base, um, you know, this it's a it's a lifestyle, not a performance uh, mindset. Um, and I know many of your listeners, and so we can dive into this, will be more kind of of the performance mindset. Um, but you know, for us, we're trying to you know figure out what is going to give an individual the highest likelihood of success to continue their athletic endeavor, um, and success being injury prevention, um, and just joy of running. Um, when it comes to performance, that's, that's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a different, more advanced, um, question, um, and, and process, you know, that, that we would go through where the interview, um, now will extend out to shoes that they've currently been in. And if they can bring them in and we can, you know, see wear patterns on them, um, and, and just, you know, their, their history of performance in, you know, in different, in different shoes that's, um, that we can kind of rely on to make the next best selection. You know, it's so funny, Matt, you just spoke so eloquently about that concept, but something that you said right in the beginning keeps spinning around in my head. And I want to make sure our listeners heard what you said, 20 to 30 minutes. You just said that like it wasn't even a consideration, right? And in a sales pace, when you're saying, I'm willing to spend 20 to 30 minutes with every level of runner or every level of walker who walks in the door, that's an absolutely huge statement. That's fantastic. Um, I've got so many questions and I think maybe, um, you know, the shoes, but I also want to talk to you about, you know, the performance and training as well. But the shoes is such an interesting thing. Uh, I'm sure you've listened to Dustin Joubert speaking and Amal Saxena speaking about you know, injuries from super shoes. And uh, the thing that I wanted to touch on with you and your experience is uh, Dustin just did a small study on average runners. So he went from looking at, you know, six minute, seven minute, you know, even five minute milers 
to going to look at 10 and 11 and 12 minute milers. And he found two things that were very interesting that A, there seemed to be a massive reduction in the value of a super shoe for that community. And then secondly, he found that there was a good percentage of individuals who actually were less efficient and less skilled and capable in a super shoe. And I just wonder what your thoughts were in that regard. Yeah, the the super shoe, you know, d- debate. I think it it's so early on, at relative to you know to shoe history, it's so early on um, with the uh, introduction to to those shoes, and and I could I could certainly see that right. And if I if I take it back to what we look at is in terms of balance, and I think the footwear development in super shoes is, um, you know, is expanding to a much wider audience. But if you look at some of those original shoes, they were they were so perfectly sculpted to one very specific you know type of runner, um, even a even a specific type of foot. Um, and and I personally could not wear the the super shoes without feeling like I was going to get injured um, when they first came out. So it you know it it wasn't a fit for me. So you know doing a disservice as as you mentioned, Bobby, to to some runners. Um, you know, in a, in a super shoe, I could certainly see that anything even from like 10 K on up, if you don't have a good foundation that your foot is riding on, um, and balance all the way through the gait cycle, then, you know, your risk of injury is going to go up. And ultimately just because of, you know, the, the degradation in your form and your mechanics, um, you know, muscle strain, soft tissue strain, over those longer events, I could I could easily see a super shoe um, hurting somebody. Now, the good um, part of that is, you know, we've seen a lot of the shoes be just, you know, uh, so much, you know, built so much better for so many different types of feet that you can truly find a, and, and support is an interesting term, right? Because it can mean so many different things in mm-hmm. footwear, but, you know, a, a shoe that will support your foot uh, complement your mechanics. And, and so I think we're getting to the point where they're much more, uh, widely attainable for most runners. Um, now, and you know, this is where I would, I would certainly rely on your expertise and the expertise of others, um, in terms of what a shoe with that much rebound return, um, you know, a carbon fiber, you know, shank, um, that, you know, that spans the entire shoe and is interfacing with the foot, you know, what that does for somebody who may not be ready for it, uh, maybe isn't strong in the right areas. You know, I could learn a lot from you all in, in terms of what that means to the runner. I would say the one good thing is that (laughs) good thing. Um, these shoes don't last very long. And so most of the time, um, at, at least what we see in our environment is that, Customers are buying them as a complement to, you know, their running shoe quiver, and it's not there all day, every day. And I certainly do not believe that it should be there all day, every day. Um, you know, shoe, it, it should be, you know, select workouts and race day, um, not, not something that we rely on because there I could see the, you know, the risk of injury um, going up. But, but I'd love to hear, you know, more about what you all um, have found, um, or the research that's out there in, in how some of these super shoes, you know, truly affect somebody from a, from a biomechanics standpoint. Yeah. It's very interesting because some part of what Dr. Saxena was saying, and remember he's an orthopedic surgeon, 
but he very quickly got to Matt and my world saying, you need to have strong feet to wear super shoes, right? So he was basically saying navicular stress fractures are very common with super shoes if you're not strong enough to handle the shoe. And he brought up a whole lot of other interesting things, which I'm sure you and your staff look at, right? The mass of the runner. And I've got a point to make on that on that concept. But you also used a beautiful phrase called sliding off the platform. You know, so it's really easy to explain to somebody what is the value of the super shoe. This is the value of the super shoe. But your gait does not allow you to stay on top of that super shoe, you know, because they, they're very narrow, they're very squishy. And a lot of gates don't actually are not actually able to utilize the super shoe in that effect. So something I've noticed recently, I was working with a lady who's an ultra marathon runner. And years ago, when I started working with her, we introduced her to the concept of the super cushy shoe as opposed to the trail run. You're running 100 miles up in Leadville and stuff like that. You really don't want to be in a trail shoe, right? It's beating the crap out of you after three or four or five hours, right? And the old-fashioned trail shoe that was rounded and was rigid and it was very thin, et cetera, et cetera. So she did really well in the, in the, in the sort of Hoka-type shoe and everybody else's stuff that was doing that. But what I discovered was being a significant heel striker is that she was too light, so she was compressing the heel of the shoe, but then her whole posture was negatively impacted because she couldn't transition onto the forefoot. The, the shoe didn't have enough of a ramp that she, and she couldn't compress the forefoot. So she was putting her heel down and then she was running up against a wedge and it was blocking her. And subsequently, I've seen quite a lot of this, that people wear a shoe that is suitable for them with this two-dimensional analysis that you were talking about, right? And then now go look at the forefoot. Now, if you look at the the you know the the side aspect, you'll see oh my goodness, the whole spine, the whole chest, everything is responding to the fact that they can't get onto the forefoot. They're staying on the heel. So it's it was something that I wanted to bring up, right? And and then the same thing is when you're fitting somebody for a shoe and you notice that their gait, well-established gait, is working with a certain shoe, but in the back of your head you know that the durability of that shoe. The durometry of the foam is going to actually create a situation very quickly down the line where that shoe is no longer going to be suitable after two or three weeks, right? So say a little bit about, you know, how you your mind's working when you fit a shoe like with with that with those considerations. Sure. Yeah. So that that last point is is very important. Um, excuse me. The 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 nice thing about how brands have started to um, build and define support um, in their shoes um, is is more on like you know the geometry, uh, the shape, sitting down in a cradle, the rocker, everything about the shoe um, versus and this still still does exist to some extent, but versus dual density foam, right? Because Bobby, your last point, you know, when you had a really dense foam wedge to help you know control pronation. Um, well, then the whole rest of the shoe just broke down really quickly, right? And the the shoe basically became the opposite of what we yeah. consider supportive in Precisely. no time, yeah, yeah. in no time at all. Um, and of course, and when we look at things from a balance standpoint, if if the foot is already sliding off, you know, the platform, that is just going to happen exponentially quicker. Uh, and so when when we look at those things and, and we're fitting people, uh, part of that is education, is to is to say that, you know, this might be 
um, the most comfortable shoe, the experience. Um, we're we're seeing good support, but you know, if if you have an exceptionally light shoe, chances are it's going to break down faster um, than than a shoe that has a little bit denser foam. Um, so I think if the customer knows that, then you know they can go into it with the power that okay, I need to you know treat this shoe with respect and know that it's it might be good for me for this period of time, um, and then I might be in soon for for another pair. Um, and I you know I think ultimately what we try to do is you know we try to build a community. Uh, around the store where we're seeing uh, certainly not every customer, but as many of the customers as as we can, and we can um, interact with them and have conversations with them, see them in the footwear as they're out using it so that we can hopefully advise them on, um, you know, hey, maybe next time we should try something different or it's just time for a new pair of shoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's why I speak, speak so strongly about education, right? Because people have these numbers in their head, you know, like a hundred miles a week and then shoes should last 300 miles. If you can, you know, one person at a time, educate them with your gait, your mass, uh, your mileage and so on. No, you, you're not gonna, it's not gonna last that long. You know, you might need to look at something different. So completely different subject. I do find, and, and I'm not speaking from a scientific standpoint, but I, uh, one, one advantage of the of the super shoe technology in terms of making the the foam of the shoe more important than than the carbon, right? Because I think more and more we're starting to realize that the carbon is controlling the foam. It's keeping the foam's integrity high so that you're getting these these linear rebounds off them. But it would seem that that Adidas with the boost material figured out a way how to how to make the cells bigger and then to individually vulcanize the cells and seal them and then comp- put them into uh, a midsole. So I-, I have a pair of shoes, not a super shoe, but it has the, the super shoe foam. Um, and what I find is, is is that the moving away from the open cell concept, and I used to have a pair of polyurethane shoes, and we knew that, know those are heavy, and there's lots of disadvantages to polyurethane, but they had that tremendous rebound, right? Um, and so the the companies that are producing these super shoes foam but they putting a nylon plate in it or they putting no plate in it at all that must be starting to open avenues in terms of midsole durability that's pretty exciting in the market yeah very true um we're seeing more and more that have the super like the foam right the super critical foams um but but no plate in them at all um and that's actually you know one of my very favorite everyday trainers uh, right now is a shoe just like that, uh, where it it has that super foam but but no plate, um, and and that you know seeming and I've had you know again put it put it to numbers and all numbers take with a grain of salt, but uh, you know I've put a solid three hundred and fifty miles on on those shoes and you know they still hold up great. Now you know a lot of the a lot of the shoe as well how the shoe moves and how durable it is um, comes down to the outsole. Um, so the outsole of the shoe can make can make a huge difference there. Um, and of course, when you're talking about the true super shoes and the race shoes, you know they're they're going for weight, um, a, a weight and responsiveness above energy return above all else. Yeah, that that that's great. And and also just to hear on your fitting process, people that don't have access to to um, retailers like yourself that have that tremendous amount of expertise that they put through to their staff and so on is looking at 
for example, take me. I, I really like to run in, in hokers. I absolutely hate walking in them and I hate coaching in them. They're a completely different shoe. And standing around in a shoe like that is really, really challenging for me and it does not treat me well. So that that intake process of, you know, honestly, truly, what are you going to use the shoes for? You know, you're going to go walk for 20 minutes, three times a week, but mostly you're just going to wear them around the house or around the office. Very different conversation. It is. And that's so interesting, Bobby, because I'm, I'm the exact same way. I, you know, for me, when a, a shoe that I work in, right, and in our work environment, we can be standing for eight to 10 hours a day, um, really soft shoes that that might be nice to run in. I'm just, I, I can't do it by the end of the day. I'd rather be barefoot, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, because I need that, I need that support, support and that marshmallowy uh, midsole, um, you know, when you're, when you're running and, you know, you're, you're loading the plantar fascia and your foot becomes rigid and it's doing a lot to control that um, feels great. Uh, but when you're just standing or you're kind of lightly walking around or, you know, in your world coaching, um, and, and I would imagine even coaching in a super soft shoes, a lot of the times on grass, right on an infield, um, around a, a track, you know, it's just, it becomes too soft and, um, you know, my feet get very tired at the end of the day for something like that. Yeah. It's a lot of hard work too, to get the shoe working. Yeah. I learned a very interesting thing. You mentioned that there in terms of surfaces from, from Gwen Jorgensen is that I moved to doing her quality workouts uh, even if they were time-based, to asphalt because her foot showed up much more soft on an asphalt surface than it showed up uh, on a trail. On a trail, it just got so hard that it was hard on her Achilles and stuff like that, which is contrary to what most people think, right? We want people to run on softer surfaces and so on. But again, you know, theoretically, I know why that happened, but practically, I didn't see it that often, and I realized that my practical experience was preconceived, Right. So I wasn't listening to the athlete, which is which is really, really important, right? I mean, one of the simplest things, you guys know this so well, is when you watch somebody running barefoot, even if it's for 20 feet, 30 feet, right? All of these anomalies that you might have noticed were shoe-based. They weren't foot-based, right? And so that that's a, a fascinating uh, concept. Yeah, and if I could yeah, just, just, you know, to, oh, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say to close, you know, the loop on that, we we were asked for years why we don't do the gait analysis barefoot. Um, and it, it, Bobby, it's for that exact reason is that, you know, if you are going to run in shoes, which, uh, you know, obviously in, in the U.S. And, and most industrialized nations, you are going to run in shoes, um, then, you know, we want to see what you look like running in shoes because running barefoot, standing barefoot can be very different than how your body, your feet, your mechanics respond under this extremely soft surface, which is the shoe, right? The difference in the difference in the surface that you're on um, is minor changes. You know, the shoe itself uh, provides you know so much cushioning and either support or lack of support that you know we want to see how how you react when you're running in shoes if that's how you're going to do the majority of your running. Matt, can, can, can you hold your question for one minute? I just want to follow up on that, right? So I often say to people, it's easier to coach elite runners because the demands of competition are set by the best people in the world, right? That's what the demands of competition are. Whereas when you're working with an age group runner, you, they just want to be better than they were yesterday. They're they, they just trying to improve. And that's a fascinating conversation when, when it comes 
two footwears is that people start to understand that it's about the very environment that I'm preparing myself to race at. And so things like my mass, my velocity, uh, the surface that I'm going to race on all come into play. And that seems to be in the average runner's life. When they walk into a running shoe, suddenly aesthetics become uh, important. Suddenly uh, the name brand becomes important. Suddenly the carbon fiber becomes important. Suddenly, all, And everything about what they actually want to do with the shoes disappears, right? So they went in there looking for a Toyota Corolla. And if they have less you know, honest salespeople, they walk out with an AMG Mercedes that they just never going to be able to use. Yeah, very true. It's <laughs> a good analogy for it. It's a great analogy. Yeah. And, and so I was going to say, just tying this in, because we do want to get to your 70.3 series training to close this up. But I wanted to say we should have you back, Matt, to do a shoe review. I think I wanted to mention that on any question, we're all expert coaches on any questions. So you can actually ask those shoe questions to Matt. We can also get those direct DMs from you guys and maybe come back with some specific questions that the audience has for us on uh, the proper shoe review for, um, for next time. If that would work for you, Matt, I hope. Yeah, I would love that. And so, yeah, thanks. And I, I think talking about um, just... Strength, I always say, is your is your ability to express your strength through your skill set, right? And so, how much force can we express? That's that's really the answer to me when it comes to strength. And so, to me, when it comes to the shoe, it's not the answer; it's the aid. But if you are looking for having an answer for this, then course i don't know we made a little program called run form hopefully uh you've heard of it <laughs> and matt you are one of our stars in run form in fact you do the form drills arguably i think the uh the toughest drills of all the series to really um to to adapt to but the ones that really come through for you and help you with this very conversation we're having about how you can actually use the shoe that's right for you but be able to really uh, use that more as an aid. And so I think going into your training, we can talk a little bit about how that actually was used in real life. So when you first came in, geez, Matt, I think that was, uh, was it 15 years ago or so when I first met you, you, you came to my gym? I think it was. Not not quite that long, but close. Yeah, 12. Okay. I think 12 years ago. 12 years. Okay. okay. Yeah. For thir 12 or 13 years ago. I'm getting old enough now where I'm, I'm uh, you know, at the Rito Tal, I see, I, I lost count of how many wonderful experiences I had talking to athletes that I coached when they were in high school and now they have kids and, and careers and I'm just blown away and I'm all, and I'm so proud of all of them, but I'm thinking, okay, to me now, everything was like 20 years ago, it seems like. So um, but when you welcome, welcome to my world. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, You know, when you talk about the experiences you had before in track running 200, 400, I, I would argue that wasn't your best events, like you mentioned, but I would also argue that maybe that was uh pretty, pretty good years to work on your, uh, your fast twitch and, uh, and to really be able to express that strength really effectively later on for triathlon, actually. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, though, with your training, and you can 
you can say it, you've said it before, but the first uh, few weeks, especially, I think that's when you really wanted to bail out of this whole system. It wasn't the bells and whistles you thought it would be, but I have a very intentional approach as does Bobby. We believe in being able to really get some accumulation going and partly for, I'm going to call it neuromuscular re-education and to really get your system or your kinematics working optimally. But that means we were working a lot initially on protocol. We were working a lot on the little guys that support the big muscles. And honestly, I felt like that's something you hadn't really done in years where actually your raw strength, your, your strength, your ability to express force has always been really, really good. So with your background and you are quite the martial artist as well, um, I actually felt like, well, here's a pretty powerful guy who actually hasn't taken the time to work on his base and the basics and really those auxiliary muscles that you can't see in the mirror. And if we can get those muscles supporting your gait, then I think it's a win. And eventually we did see that that was a win for you literally and figuratively, um, especially off the bike in your first external national championship win. But you know, briefly talk about that experience and then we can talk about what you can do for your training today, Matt. Sure. Um, well, I'll gladly talk about it because it is literally uh, my favorite story of my athletic journey. Uh, when I when I first came to who I know now is the great Matt Pendola, and um, I don't even know how I was referred to you or how we got connected, but um, you know, basically I went in there thinking like with big goals, um, and I was I'd say kind of like a a broken athlete from the standpoint that um, I was I, I would just keep getting injured, right? So I would go through at, at least one to two relatively significant setbacks every every year with injuries, right? Where I would just have to be off training. Um, either swim, bike, or run more, uh, more often run, um, that I would have to take time off from. And, you know, it was just a, a burden to training, but somebody had referred me to you and I, and I came there and, you know, I was thinking, well, this guy's just going to get me to work out harder, right? Like I'm just going to work out hard and I'm going to be better than I ever was. Uh, and then we started doing these drills and, um, I, it was probably two or three days in, I went home and talked to my wife and I'm like, I don't think I'm going to stick with this. It just, it seems, it seems silly. And, and she, you know, to her great credit said, just, just stick with it. You know, what do you have to lose? Just, just do it. And the, the time that it took, you know, relative to you look at how long it takes to become, you know, really good or progress or, you know, be great at anything years, right? Decades, the 10,000 hour rule, all of that. And, Thank God I made it from like two or three days into 10 because that was such a turning point where like the switch was so apparent where all of a sudden I felt like my body was working and, you know, in your words, Matt, like, you know, expressing, you know, my potential, my strength in the way that I was capable of that I never had before. Um, and that first Xterra Nationals, um, the run starts and okay so the run was not my specialty that was by far the worst part um of my triathlon swim and bike i was pretty good at i, I own a running store now uh that back then i didn't but the run was not not my strong suit and i got off the bike 
on that run at the first Xterra Nationals that I won. And you start with, I think it's about a mile and a half climb, right? Right out of transition, you just go straight up this ski hill. And I could not get the smile off of my face <laughs> because of how good that I felt. It was absolutely incredible. It was, it was just, it, it was just pure joy. And then thinking to myself and Matt, you always challenge us, you know, to, to kind of have that, that word, um, that expression that we say, and mine was rise, uh, like, you know, rise to the occasion. And, and as I'm rising up out of this hill, um, it, I just couldn't believe how good I felt. And then, you know, we hit the flat and you're on this twisty single track and, I, I just took off and I was like, no, now like the run is where I have it. And I knew that there was no way anybody was catching me that day. Um, and you know, it all went back to, in my mind, I'm going to do air quotes, um, the, this, the silly drills, right. That we've heard, we were doing in the gym where I thought I was just going to work out harder. Um, so yeah, that, that was the story. True believer. Now people can do that, you know, through, through run form it, you know, it's a largely a lot of the same stuff that we were doing in the gym. 12, 13 years ago. Well, yeah, I yeah. appreciate Amy so much. She kept you in the loop. And now you are very much a part of my culture and, and even example to follow. Because of you, There, I can say there are quite a few athletes, especially in Reno, that have stuck with my programs and seen those benefits. It is the hard sell to get somebody to really be patient with the process and what you want me to start with movement improvement. I mean, that's why we actually give it free on our site because we're saying like, look, we're not, we're, this is so important to us. We're giving it free to you guys. And the people that I talk to, and I, I do a lot of customer service, especially right now, I'm proud to say we have over 1300 people right now using our movement improvement. So really excited about that and the feedback I'm getting, but Really, it comes down to that consistency at first. And I'm trying to develop sort of, again, part of that culture, part of a ritual for you to gain not only coordination and control, but to me, more ultimately confidence in I can do these movements. I'm improving. I can even optimizing movements for our plan. We, we say very clearly that there's some less optimal and optimal positions we want to get towards, but everybody's different that way. So if we are able to even restore some range or maintain range as we get older, that's so important. But moving forward in this conversation, when you talk about somebody going through these steps and finally getting into month two of, let's say, run form, that's when the form drills come in. They don't even come in month one. And so a lot of the conversations I have with people is, you got to be patient. And I don't know how many times I've brought up your story to people, just especially if I think that uh, it's useful because they're, uh, they, they know you or they know of you or they can at least relate to your example. And it is there is a reason why we decided to put the form drills in the second month. And you're a pure example of that. Like we, we do need to build that process up for athletes. And there does, I would call it a patience phase. There has to be that patience phase, but there is a point now where it clicks. And generally speaking, depending on the athlete, I would say if you're consistent with it for 10 to 20 days, it really does start to click and it does start to matter to you. And then it's like, you don't want to miss it anymore. <laughs> so uh, and then from there, we can really have fun with developing more strength, your ability to really 
you know, express that force more and more effectively. So going forward now, though, I would say for your training for 70.3, you have a goal for doing, I believe, in November, a 70.3. And talk to us a little bit about what that goal is. And um, we'll let Bobby and and myself a little bit give some answers to that. And we'll, we'll wrap up with this. But I think that'd be a fun thing to uh, finish with, Matt. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so yeah, 70.3 Indian Wells, um, Palm Desert. I believe it's the first or second of December. So, you know, right somewhere right around there. Um, so it's still quite a bit of time to, to get prepped for it. Um, and, you know, I will say that uh, re- I mean, really since the day that we met, I have been doing my movement improvement literally every morning of my life uh, for that many years. Uh, but as you know, I haven't really trained for anything significant now in years. And so the drills um, haven't been a part of my my program. So that's something that I'm excited to get get back to. I've always done movement improvement because, you know, to me, running, biking, being active is just a way of life. And I just, I want to move well. I don't want it to hurt. I don't want to get injured. I just want it to be able to, you know, keep doing it for the pure enjoyment. Now I switch over a little bit to more of a performance mindset with getting back into training and having a goal on the calendar, um, a, a race on the calendar with goals, you know, during that race. And so, you know, I'd love to be able to go under 430 um, for, you know, for the half Ironman, um, you know, looking at it, that's um, a world championship qualifying time, you know, in my 40, you know, to 44 age group. Um, but the caveat for me is to do that um, with a maximum of 10 hours a week, right? So, you know, four, uh, 4.30 max 10 hours a week, uh, just because the demands of my life with, you know, family, three kids, uh, the businesses, you know, that we have and and other commitments, um, I don't want it to, to, to kind of take over. Uh, I want it to be something that adds to my life, um, you know, that, that I can, you know, kind of, sh- you know, show our kids um, that they can be a part of in, in some way and not just, Hey, dad's out there training five, six hours a day, you know, especially on the weekend. So, um, you know, hence, you know, here we are, I know you two are the, the best in the biz. And especially when I'm operating on a very, very limited amount of time for my training, I thought who better to talk to, uh, than you two about the best way to attack that and achieve the goal. Wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible, Matt. That's a, that's a great goal. And, you know, uh, businesses have been launched on the 10-hour the Ironman, right? So the 10-hour-a-week <clears throat> Ironman, so we know that's doable. I wanted to just start with one place. When you came in and you did the drills for us, right, you'd never done those specific sequence of drills before, right? And I know what you look like when you run. And one of the things that I noticed was, you know, one of my principles is being compact, right? And I noticed that when you ran, if this was compact, you tended to do a little bit of that side-to-side stuff. And we had that conversation where we related it to your background as a 100, 200-meter runner, right? So you had the leg spring stiffness. You had the, the tissue elasticity. You had that plyometric response that is so very useful. But you didn't have the stability and the balance and, and, and that core integrity to be able to transfer that elasticity into forward motion. And so with your background now of going through all of those things, coming into the world of, of, of you know, uh, 70.3, all right, and then going for 10 hours, you start realizing, okay, I'm going to get 
all of the endurance that I need from the bike and from the swim, right? And I just have to be able to hold the integrity of my form together to run as fast as I'm capable of running off my engine, right? And so that it goes to that being able to maintain your postural integrity. And now suddenly eight minutes worth of work is incredibly valuable in maintaining your postural integrity, right? And it's saving you a, a whole lot of time in that kind of regard, right? So you also, in your age group, which is an incredibly competitive age group in 70.3, right? That 40 to 44 age group yep. is is where it's all happening, especially with the male community, right? Um, so you have to be very lean and economical with what you do. And so you go back to that classic question, right? What will give me the most bang for my buck, you know? And uh, and so that that represents that that really exciting thing is is what is the posture when I am running at the pace that I want to run off the bike with, right? Bearing in mind that the golden rule of long course racing for the age group athlete is when in doubt, ride your damn bike because it's such a bike predicated, you know, e event. Um, but just saying, okay, how do I look fresh when I'm running that pace? All right. And then how do I look? How am I functioning when I'm running off the bike? You know, now I've got, I'm three and a half hours in, right? Uh, of working, how do I look for the next hour? And then basing the entire approach of your training with that 10 hours a week that you have available on being structurally highly, having high integrity when you're running with very little left in the tank, you know, so that you're getting that that maximal bang for, for your buck, you know. So I'm, I can see Matt's brain going, huh, okay, so Bobby's challenging me here. He's saying, okay, what the hell do I do with Matt? And when do I give him this kind of work relative to when he last rode his bike and when and he last, you know, did a swim? Yeah, now I'll say, first of all, Run Form is a program that I believe works especially well for triathletes too. This question comes up a lot in customer service because we are called Run Form. But when Bobby talks about the kinematics and your ability to be able to hold your posture, let it flow out of you, especially off the bike into the run at the end, these all of these drills, Matt, are still going to be very useful because going especially off the bike and in aerodynamic positions, the more and more you're doing that, I would say especially, then that becomes a little bit of the undoing for the run. So all of the drills that we have in run form are specific to be able to get that uh, optimal outcome for a triathlete as well. So that being said, beyond the run form drills, and I do have some specific drills knowing you that I feel like you could focus on, but also I told you uh, before the podcast, come by my, my house, I'm going to show you a few things. This is where I get to cheat a little bit because I know that you are a little bit more advanced. So with the limited amount of time you have, let's just take your biking, for example, because that is a big, a big one for 70.3. Um, right now, I believe you're around 280 watts for an hour of power, somewhere around there, right? And you want to be able to get back to where you were at about 318 watts, right? So with you, I'm going to uh, put you on a sled drill and I'm going to load that weight about two and a half, three times your body weight. Okay. And 
that's where we get to play around with somebody like you who is a little bit more advanced experience as a lifter as well. Uh, because in three yards, getting about three to five reps of your pulls and your pushes with the sled, we're going to be able to go two and a half, three times your body weight. And we want to do multiple sets of that. So we can, we can break it down to three yards pulling and then three yards pushing. That's going to be about between that three to five rep range to do that for the sled for a set. And I would actually build you into about 10 sets of those, but there's not nearly as much intermuscular damage or there's, in other words, your ability to be able to really uh, sustain that in a short amount of time and repeat that. That's a cool cheat sheet for somebody like you. So that's where I would go to. Gives you a lot of bang for your buck. It's mainly concentric. It's not a lot of breakdown. So it fits into your training really, really well. And, you know, that's just an example, though, of once you do get to the more experienced level, then I like to give those three to five rep ranges for a guy like you with as much weight as you can handle, knowing that you have been keeping up with your uh, your protocol and that you're following the run form system uh, to make sure that those little guys are taken care of as well. So, you know, that's my first thought on that. And uh, I think, I think you would really enjoy that type of training as well, but it's, uh, you know, short and sweet, quick and dirty, and it gets the job done in less time. Yeah. I, I love that work because I I've seen it work for me personally. So <laughs> Matt to it. Yeah. I'll, I'll go one, I'll go one more thing to, to know that in the world of cycling, uh, aerodynamics trumps power every single time. Right. But that changes in triathlon. In the world of cycling in triathlon, comfort even trumps aerodynamics. So you're trying to get to that sweet spot, right? That you're trying to get as aerodynamic as possible, right? Because your power utilization is so exponential, right? To go one mile an hour faster uh, in terms of power uh, can require a whole lot more power that comes outside of that uh, 300 plus range, which now starts to, to negatively impact your run, right? Uh, but also, what negatively impacts your run way more is your position on the bike if it messes with your ability to get back to your running kinematics. So I remember a conversation with Craig Walton where he explained to me in the past that he said if he does this and this and this kind of running workout, discussing it with his coach at the time, then he could probably go 45 seconds faster in Olympic distance triathlon in the 10K. And all his coach said was, yep, but that'll cost you three minutes on the bike. Okay, so now you're going, oh, wow. Okay, so I'm going, instead of going 56 on the bike for 40K, I'm now going 59 on the bike to go 45 seconds faster on the run, right? And then did, doing an analysis of, of what was going on with Craig Alexander's run when he moved from uh, Olympic distance racing you know, to to Ironman and, and being so successful that his stride rate went up, his stride angle went down, he was posturally more impaired, and eventually with his back that got him, he couldn't get into that incredibly effective time trial position on the bike. He had to give up some of that of that slipperiness on the bike in order to just to be able to run at, at a pace that brought him in at like 245, 244 off the bike, you know? 
So, it, you know, it's important as you go into this, this period of time that when you're looking at your bike fit and stuff like that, always consider the, the comfort aero conversation and balance that up. And, and that comfort is all based on what does it allow you to run at? Yeah, and I would finish, I'd finish Matt with uh, my experience with Ben Canute in 70.3 versus the exterior work you used to do. Um, there's some variables there, but I found that three sessions, 20 minutes a piece a week is pretty, is pretty optimal to do in the first uh, half of your training. And then we even dropped that to two sessions, 20 minutes, just keeping up with your protocol. So, you know, just looking at those variables of uh, making sure that those sessions are really compact, they're getting a lot done, but they just don't take a lot of time. So it fits into the 10 hours that you have. But also, again, something I really learned a lot more working with somebody like Ben going 70.3 and then potentially full Ironman and distances in between like that 100K. We're, we're looking at less is more, but we do want to keep that frequency up. So 20-minute sessions every 48 to 72 hours have been uh, a game changer, I think, for Ben. And so I would follow a similar plan with you on the strength side of things. Um, you know, other than that, yeah, Bobby's hands. Yes, yeah, like, no, no, I'm uh, no, I'm going completely. You know, strong before long, always. You know, so when Matt and I are working with somebody, I say that, and it's very hard for the coaches to accept, right? We say that Matt is the number one guy at the start of the training. After that, Matt will take a back, back seat. And he will go, okay, what do you guys have left for me, right? In terms of maintenance and stuff like that. But starting off with saying, well, let me just do a base period. No, no, you can't do a base period. You've got to be strong before the base starts. Otherwise, we're not going to get to functional and pre-race stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much so much sense. And I think it's commonly done the opposite, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, you yep. got you to gotta be strong before... Um, before you can go on. Yeah, we can't be yep, reactive. Precisely. Right? We, yeah, and it's, I think, um, Matt, we're definitely going to have you back on because there's so much. We, <laughs> yeah. We've gone over, Matt, how long podcast? Well, we we uh, go an hour max probably, and we've gone over that for sure, but I think people are going to really love this information. So want to finish up, allow you, Matt, to talk a little bit about where people can find you, your running store, your, uh, your race 178 programs, all of that. Uh, I will, I will say that I am starting to do some blogs for your newsletters and I was going to write a newsletter about my RTO experience for your, your next newsletter. So I'm excited about that. Uh, you have a lot of people who are following you these days. So, uh, let people know how they can find you and, uh, and, um, you know, we'll look forward to having you back on next time, brother. Oh, great. Thanks, guys. Uh, yes. So uh, RenoRunningCompany.com. Um, that's, you know, the website has the locations for our three stores here in the Reno metro area. So if you're local or semi-local, uh, we'd love to have you drop in. Um, if not, we've got a full online store uh, for, for shopping of all sorts of uh, running, you know, footwear, or other needs. Um, we have a chat function on there, so you can you know jump on the chat, talk to an expert, ask questions. Uh, we try and get to those right away. Um, and then, as Matt mentions, uh, our blog, uh, we have a big focus on that this year, where we're just trying to put content out there uh, that's that's useful, you know, to anyone to help aid in their their journey, whether that's 
um, you know, strength related things, motivational related things, injury prevention, um, you know, running through pregnancy, all sorts of different topics where, you know, we just, we want to highlight a lot of different uh, journeys and, and show people that, you know, if somebody else has, has done it before, they can accomplish it too. Um, and then, you know, for me personally, um, LinkedIn is probably, I spend a little more time than some of the other traditional social media stuff. So um, if, if they're there, they can, um, you know, ask me a question as well as I'm a new coach, uh, thanks to, uh, to Matt Pendola or a new expert, I should say, on um, any question. So um, I'll start answering questions there as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Matt. Wonderful to have you. And it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. We speak too seldom, my friend. Take care. Yes. Thanks, yeah. Matt. It's been my pleasure. Absolute honor joining you too and, um, and adding, adding to this wonderful podcast. So thank you. We'll look forward to having you back on in a couple months. You can do a shoe review and we can talk about how your training is coming along. I'm sure people would be interested in hearing how that actually works in the, in the, uh, in the transition between now and your race. So thanks again, Matt. This was wonderful. And uh, we'll talk soon, brother. Cheers. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pendola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.